Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hello and welcome to the New School Video Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FICOM Partners. We are a marketing and PR agency specializing in the independent wealth management space. We're passionate about helping our clients drive both organic and inorganic growth, and we have solutions for advisors at every stage of their growth journey. My name is Candace Carlton, and I'm the head of advisor education at Ficom Partners. I'm joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, the CEO, Meg Carpenter. So this is a really cool episode because it's the first time we took the new school on the road and we did an in-person live recording at the REA Edge conference, an industry conference in Florida. So the ner my nerves got a little bit of the best of me. You might hear that in the episode, but not only were we live, but we got the cool opportunity to interview our industry influencer, Michael Kitsis. So I don't really think that Michael Kitsis needs any kind of introduction. You can check him out on kitsis.com. Very well-known thought leader, does a ton of research, lots of solutions, sought after opinion maker in our space. So we know all those things about Michael, but I think what he shares in this episode is a little bit more of his personal vulnerable side, his personal journey and experience in finding his voice, being confident in who he is, and how that helped him really drive accelerated business success. I think you're going to love it. Let's get started. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. This is a really exciting opportunity for us. We are recording a live podcast episode with Michael Kitsis, who needs very little introduction. We launched the New School podcast, and you can school with a K, with the intention of talking about authenticity and vulnerability in our industry. These two ingredients we know are essential to connection, but something that for most of us, we're afraid of, especially in a public forum on social media or how we're showing up in our marketing. So to kick it off, I had a different way I was going to introduce us and kick us off, but I think this is the way to go. Michael, you are someone who shows up very authentically. You wear your blue shirt wherever you go. We're all clear on who you are, your point of view, and it's represented in your newsletters, your website, how you show up at conferences. Was there ever a time you felt like you couldn't be yourself, or what was that journey like to really embracing who you are? Oh, man. When, when could I not be myself? Well, you all, like, certainly high school was pretty dark, as I think it is for... Uh, for all of us, right? There, there is sort of that, that, right? The early days of, they think all of us go through and just trying to like find our identity and figure out, you know, like the joke, like who we are, who we want to be when we grow up. I'm still actually not entirely sure what I want to be when I grow up, but like I'm at least living the journey now. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, it, it, it went in stages. I mean, there's, there, there's a version of this of just kind of 
the high school and college years and just figure out kind of like, what do I do in this world? What do I seem to do that like works in the world and other people interact well with? And like, what's, we'd sort of form that initial piece of our, our identity and self image. Um, yeah, that, that kind of carried me in early career for probably like the first five to seven years of my career or so. Um, I, I think the, the most formative piece for me was probably, so in 2004, uh, I went to the FPA's retreat conference for the first time. And uh, so FPA retreat, I guess then and now was supposed to be like the, the, the conference of the future of financial planning, like the art and science and the future of financial planning. I had taken a job as director of financial planning for a, a fast growing RIA uh, that said, like, we want to immerse you deeper into financial planning. Uh, you, they'd been involved with FPA. They were like, this is the conference you should go to. And so I got, I went, I got sent. I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, but I was all excited because it's supposed to be the future of financial planning. And and I show up and there were about 350 to 400 people there. I was 24 years old at the time. And there were four of us at the entire conference under the age of 40. So there's like 346 people in their 50s and 60s and four of us in our 20s and 30s. And it was literally supposed to be the conference of the future of financial planning. I'm like, none of these people are going to be here in the future. They're all going to be retired in 10 and 20 years. Where's the future? And what ended up happening was the four of us who were under the age of 40 came together and were like, this is not good. We should form like a group of all the other young planners so that we can get together and form connections. So that became NextGen, which many years later got rolled into, into the FPA. But here was the interesting thing. So when we, when we made NextGen, I was very focused from the start that I wanted to make sure it was something that would survive and last, and that it had to stay about its focus. And its focus at the end of the day was like advisors who come into the business in their 20s and just all the stuff that you go through in part when you're like trying to find your personal identity and your career identity and build your professional credibility and like there's a bunch of stuff that you deal with in that phase. And so we put an age limit on next gen. Because I was like, I look, I know what otherwise is going to happen. We're going to get older in 10 years and we're going to make this thing about us instead of having it be about the next generation. It's just going to be our generation that's going to roll with us. So I put an age limit in place that would force us to be kicked out. And it was super controversial then and even still of all this criticism that we got around creating an age limit for it. And you know what, what I learned and realized in that process is like the people who were very negative on the age limit were essentially people who didn't qualify for the age limit and were not happy that they were going to not get to be in the, in the club, in this thing that we were creating. But I kept looking at it saying like, but it's not for you. It's like we would get this from career changers that were like, I'm in my 40s and I want to be in the new advisor club. I'm like, well, that's cool. But like, you should make a new advisor club for you because career changers in their 40s coming in the industry have a completely different set of problems than college students in their early 20s coming into the industry. So like, you need a group for you, but this is a group for different people. And like what it started to drill home for me was just this, this realization that like, look, if you're going to do a thing that helps the world, like you can't help everyone at once. You can only help certain people. And if you're going to help certain people and you really focus on them, the inevitable reality is the people you're helping are going to appreciate that you're helping and the people who are outside of that domain are going to take shots at it. Mm. But that's the only way you can really stay focused on helping the people that you want to help. And so like living through that and just dealing with like the immense amount of personal flack since I was the one that like died on the hill of the age limit, um, 
they really drilled home for me this this realization that for me became sort of part parts of um, identity and authenticity of, I mean, we all sort of say like, you can't please everyone and that saying is out there. But to me, like that was, that was the first moment in my career that I really lived it and had a realization, like I had to stick to my guns on something because it really mattered for the people that I was trying to serve. And it, and it mattered because lots of other groups have been created over the past 10 or 15 years. FPA created multiple different communities. There's only one that ever survived for any period of time, and it's yours. And, and it was next gen. It's still going and it's still functioning. All the other ones dissipated because it kept a really clear identity by saying we know exactly who we're for and we're gonna stay focused on that. And that's what made it sustain. Like it, 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 it helped to create its authentic identity. Mm. It sort of makes me think of the Tim Ferriss mantra, you know, don't worry about the people who don't want to buy your products, worry about the people who do. Yes. And the theme of organic growth has permeated the, the conference that we're at today, which we're recording this podcast live from Wealth Management Edge in Florida. And so many of the headliners, keynote speakers, and panels have been talking with the audience about how to drive organic growth because it's just such, um, I think, a conundrum for many advisors today. If you strip out referrals, how do you think about driving growth in the absence of market growth? And so the concept of authenticity has also come up a lot. But we see this hesitation in the market of advisors sort of being willing to boldly go and really narrow their market. You talk so much with the industry about niche marketing. I think there's a drinking game when people are listening to your podcast. How quickly will how many, Michael... How many minutes does it take until I say niche in a podcast? Yes, yes. And you've been talking about this for over a decade, right? So why hasn't the industry adopted it more widely? I mean, I, th I think a lot of it comes out of it's, it's a version of this same phenomenon, which is, you know, for most of us, I think it's, so part of this is just a human nature thing. Um, if I say to anyone, you've got to take a stand on something, our brains immediately go to the people who are going to disagree with that stand and the, like the shots that they're going to take at us or how much dislike or hatred or nose or negativity we're going to get. And, and I, I like, and I, I, I don't want to be negative to anyone that, that like gets stuck on, I've got this idea, but I'm worried about what the naysayers are going to say. Like, I think it's actually hardwired into us. Like, just mm -hmm. human beings as a species, we are herd animals. And there's a bunch of stuff that's wired into our brains physiologically that, basic, that has like a very clear formula. People who run with the herd live. People who do different things than the herd get picked off by predators. That's how it worked for most of our species survival. So we really do have this very hardwired thing to to want to go with the herd. And like I get that to some extent. Like I don't I don't I want to be antisocial or anything either. But when you when you start thinking about this from a marketing perspective and a growth perspective and just a service perspective, like getting back to the earlier comment around our, our growth and next gen, like you can't serve everyone. And when you try to serve everyone, it doesn't end up being meaningful to anyone. So what, like, what I went through early on in forming NextGen was like, eventually I had to get comfortable with, this thing won't be good for young advisors if we let everybody in. I can see there are other groups like career changers that need a thing as well. And I just don't have enough time left in the day to solve for that because I'm like growing my career and growing our advisory firm back then and just trying to keep NextGen going and, and all the stuff that I was doing at the time. Like, I just had to, like, I cannot help everyone. Like, there's a there's another thing over here for another group that has to be solved. I can't help them, but I'm not going to screw up the thing that I'm building 
to help other people that I don't have the capacity to help. And like the, the difference for me was I got really focused on who I was actually serving and helping. And most of us get much more fixated on the people that we won't serve or can't help or who will say no or who will be negative. And to me, just that, that has always been the guiding light at the end of the day. Like, look, I can't help everyone. The stuff I do isn't for everyone. I know there are a bunch of people out there in the industry and here at the conference who hate my guts and think I'm full of it. It's cool. They're like walking on the other side of this expo hall right now, strolling the booths and definitely do not come over here. And that's kind of the point. Like, the people who want to hear what you have to say, show up. And the people who don't want to hear what you have to say, just kind of opt out. Like, life is busy. Most, most people don't go out of their way to say, like, you know what? My life is really busy, but I'm going to take the afternoon just to heckle this one random person that I don't like. Like, they go on about their lives. But the people that, that you connect with and add, and add value to show up for it. And if you keep adding value to them, they keep showing up for it. And that's ultimately how businesses get built and made. And so when you look at like all the different things that we've done, advice pay, like it's just for a particular fee-for-service business model. We're solving that problem. Uh, XY planning network, like we're helping a particular segment of advisors that want to serve next generation clients and build their own businesses independently. And like nothing against employees. I'm also affiliated with a giant advisory firm called Buckingham that has like 500 employees. So like, hey, employee thing is cool too. But XYPN does a particular thing for a particular segment. Our kits' platform shows up for what I call the advisors, the people who really want to get paid for the value of their advice and compensated for their advice, and that's value they create. And like nothing against the people who are really awesome at managing portfolios, and that's what they do, and that's all they do, and they get clients that hire them for that. I don't write for you. That's why there's no investment content on our site. I write for people who are in the advisor business. You can get investment content somewhere else. And, and so just... To me, like the biggest driver is when you when you start just focusing on the value of the people that you're serving, the rest don't matter. Like I don't want to say ignore the haters and the naysayers, because like our brains are not wired to ignore them and it's pithy advice to say it because just we're not gonna easy said, not easy done. The the path to me, like it's not just saying ignore the naysayers, they'll be out there. It's easier if you ignore them, but that's hard and not all of us are wired that way. It's about focusing on who you serve and like just being awesome for them. And when you're awesome for them and you spend a lot of time with them and they do usually say nice things because like you're hanging out with them and you're doing useful things for them and they appreciate it. It's awesome. Like, it feels really good. It's like, I know there's a whole bunch of people out there in the industry who don't like what I do. I don't spend time with them. And then it doesn't feel that bad. I spend time with the people I'm helping and we have nice conversations. Michael, you've been talking about niches for riches forever. If we go to your website, there's all this research and data, hard data around advisors who serve a specific niche grow faster. Yep. And grow faster, higher fees, better productivity, lower cost. I mean, just to be clear. Like say it again one more time. Uh, uh, higher fees, better productivity, uh, lower cost, more business efficiency. And yet, faster growth rates. Yep. Yeah, and then yet to your point, we find it with our individual advisors and advisor education all the way up to our platform clients or giant RAs, focusing on a specific who, to your point, is very hard. They feel like they're going to die. That's what Carl Richards told us. Like He was like, you feel like you're going to die if you're separated from the herd, which is yep. what you've said. And I think I've also been really um, excited to hear, we've got Tucson Bailey in the audience here, him and other people talking about 
the abundance mindset around collaboration versus competition in our industry. And if you see it through that lens, and I think you said this more, when you focus on your who in your marketing, what you're trying to do is not get more no's, but actually get more yeses. Yeah, so I, I think about this a few different ways. One is like going with this theme of kind of like, you know, the, the, the safety of running with the herd and the scariness of separating with the herd. Like, if you want to boil it down to its simplest essence, like the whole reason why pursuing niches and specializations works so well is, is it's not that you're separating from yourself from the herd and creating risk. You're finding your herd. You're finding your better herd, right? Like otherwise we're like zebras running with a bunch of lions. It's really a lot safer when you start running with other zebras. And when you find your tribe, when you find your people, when you find the ones that are aligned to you, because you know, just most of us end up creating some kind of niches and specializations around people that we like serving, that we're aligned to, that we enjoy working with, that we like the intellectual challenges and the psychic uh, gratification of working with them. I mean, most of us don't like choose a client segment that's unpleasant to work with. We pick one that that fits well for us. We we had an advisor recently on the on the podcast, like former nuclear engineer, and his niche is other nuclear engineers. And his whole thing is, every time he does a financial plan for clients, he does two financial plans and independent software packages to verify them against each other, which sounds horrifically inefficient, and it is, except he works with nuclear engineers. The standard protocol in nuclear engineers, you never, ever trust an indicator or a gauge without independently verifying it a second time. Because if a gauge malfunctions and you're wrong, like bad things explode in really bad ways. So it is standard protocol. You always run the numbers twice and independently. And so this thing that sounds ridiculously inefficient, right? If you went to any other practice management conference and said, let me tell you about how I run financial planning software twice in two completely independent packages just to verify the numbers separately, like he would get laughed off the stage for the inefficiency, except he's with his herd. And with his herd, that's perfect, and that's why he gets all his clients and no one else gets nuclear engineers because no one else has the patience to run the financial planning software twice in two different packages just to give the one client one client to plan. So it, like, it's not about all the people we're going to say no to and move away from. It's about finding our herd of the people that we're going to work with and just this fundamental realization. At the end of the day, most advisors can have wildly successful practices with 50 great clients. Mm -hmm. That's really all it takes. You can sometimes even get it down to 40, 30, 20, but if you can get your affluence and the revenue per client high enough. Like most of us can have wonderfully successful practices with 50 clients. When I look at most firms that have hundreds of clients, like, yeah, it's cool. You probably only see 20 or 30% of them on a regular basis, and the 80 20 rule basically always holds. Like you're making all your profits from 50 clients, and the other like 200 are break even or negative loss leaders to get the other 50. And if you recognize like all you need is 50 great clients, that's why things like nuclear engineer, there's a guy out there whose niche is bass fishermen, not all fishermen, because that would be too broad, <laughs> just bass fishermen. And it sounds ridiculous. Like he grew up on a lake with a bass fishing tournament. He's been involved in that community his whole life. His father was a bass fishing pro that brought him into the, uh, into that world. And by the time he was 37 years old, he had $120 million under management and 90% of his clients were bass fishermen. Mm. And like his client events were, were one week hunting expeditions in the wild because that's what his clients were. That's what he loves to do. And that's what his clients love to do. So like 
he goes and hunts and fishes for fun and calls them business expenses. And like his best story is the time he legitimately had to fight off an alligator from his client's leg with a knife. These are his client stories. Uh, but because he found his herd. And the guy with nuclear engineers found his herd. And we spend so much time like worrying about the herd we're leaving and not the herd that we're finding. Mm. And it's so much more rewarding when you just, when you find your people and you spend time with your people. Preach. <laughs> Preach. It's, it's a mindset, right? And it's also a belief of what's possible. And I think that if we're switching now maybe a little bit to the leadership mindset that you bring to the industry, which I believe that so many advisors and other leaders here can learn from, you have this incredible ability to identify gaps mm -hmm. and boldly step into those gaps. And you also have this confidence. I mean, you're talking about, I don't worry about the people that are on the other side of this exhibit hall that don't want to hear me. And you don't seem to worry about, we asked you uh, on our prep call about what are some mistakes? Like, where are some areas where you feel like, oh my gosh, I totally did that wrong. And you said, I don't have many because I move through those quickly. I think you bring this very interesting leadership mindset to the work that you do. Where did that come from? Oh, man, where did, where did that come from? Um... It's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I'll admit, like, there, there's probably a small piece of it that just hardwired. Like, some of us are just wired a little bit more to move on from the challenge that we have, and some of us dwell on them uh, a little bit more. So I'll, I'll own, like, some part of that is probably some, some, uh, some weird piece of how my brain happens to be wired. Um, ironically, a, a part of it probably comes from, so I'm also, I'm fairly severe ADHD. Uh, and I, I guess sort of, the, well, uh, the, the pain of ADHD through pretty much all of schooling is like sit in a chair in a classroom for an extended period of time, not so good for me because my brain's like running a mile a minute and I want to move on to the next thing. Uh, I suppose in the context of dealing with challenges, like the brain's running a mile in a minute and moves on to the next thing, probably actually helpful in, uh, uh, in, in retrospect. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it for, uh, for me, like it comes back to those those places, well, so I guess I, I would say it's two things for me of sort of like, where does that come from? Part of it is, so early in my career, I, like I utterly did not have that confidence at all. Like I, I started in the industry for those who, who uh, don't know my backstory. Like I was a liberal arts grad at a New England college, psych major, theater minor, pre-med, decided I want to do none of that by graduation, land in the financial service industry out of sheer randomness because of a, a, a uh, a family introduction to a sales manager. I became a financial advisor and I had no idea what that was or what financial planning was or any of it. It's like random landing straight out of college because I needed a job. And, you know, I got relatively quickly in, into that world and remember just uh, like sitting across the table from, uh, from a prospective client who's asking all these questions about like saving for retirement and how much do I save and where do I invest? And I was like, I have no freaking clue. Like you realize I'm 20, you have children older than I am. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm dressed in a nice tie and suits and they're not, but like, like I don't even deserve the credibility you're giving me sitting across the table. And I had like a really severe crisis of con conscience of like, what the heck am I doing? Like this is his life savings and I have no freaking clue what I'm doing. Uh, and it scared the heck out of me. Like just, I, you know, I, 
I view what we do as advisors very much in the context, like this is a sacred duty. I mean, like there are, there are a few things out there that you can screw up badly enough to actually like cause someone to like experience severe depression and suicide, but like blowing up their finances, like you can literally ruin lives and families. Uh, and like that hit home for me super hard early on the industry and scared the crap out of me. And my only response to it at the time was, well, and I got to learn how to know my stuff. Mm. Uh, and so, like, you know, if you look at my business card, like, I get the jokes, like, the alphabet soup of, of, of degrees and designations on my business card. Like, that's where it came from. Like, I ain't going back out in front of clients until I feel like I know, I really know what I'm talking about. And because I set that bar really high for myself, like... I needed two master's degrees and six or seven designations. Don't necessarily recommend that. That's my neurosis. But, uh, but it all came from I had to figure out how I was going to get confident enough to sit across from a client, look him straight in the eye, and say, like, I know my stuff, and this really is the best thing for you. And once I got there, like, I'm there. Like, I, I know my stuff. I know I know my stuff. It took me, I mean, cumulatively probably five or five years to get that level of, of confidence, uh, which is a lot of like time and grinding and plans and meetings and delivery and school and education. And like, I, 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 I always took the absolute minimum course load and stayed continuously enrolled. And so like all the degrees and designations, which is about seven or eight years of minimum course load, always taking one course a term and just do that with enough persistent time and it adds up. So, for me, like, it was figuring out what does it take for confidence. And, you know, like, Carl Richards and I on our Kitsis and Carl, Carl contest have talked about this. Like, Carl comes from a different place. He's, and, and I mean this the best way, but, like, Carl lives a, like, fake it till you make it thing. Like, mm. do it for a while, and then as you do it, you find and build your confidence. That's how he built his confidence. Mm. I, like, I can't do it that way. I'm just not wired that way. Like, I had to, I had to make it before I could get it out there because otherwise the fake it mentality was too overwhelming for me. Mm. And so I was all into my knowledge, my education to get the point of like, I'm going to know my stuff before I go and do this in front of clients because I'm putting their life savings and their lives and their families' lives at risk. And once I learned that and got, got to that level, I'm like, well, now I know my stuff. Like, all right, game on, game on. And, and, and I think the second piece I would, I would note from that you know like carl has this wonderful saying i know he 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 didn't originate it i can't remember where it came from originally uh uh the idea of having very strong beliefs loosely held mm -hmm. so you know i have a lot of confidence in what i what i say and what i do and it always comes from a place of data and research because that's my nerdiness of how i'm wired but i'm also always trying to take in new information. I'm always looking, reading, and scanning what's out there. I'm always trying to learn what else so that I can figure out, like, is there something I knew that really isn't correct and that I that I should be saying, and uh, you know, that I should be talking about saying instead because I've learned this new thing. Uh, there's an interesting challenge to that around authenticity in and of itself because, you know, in the in the in the general parlance of humanity, like we have a word for this, we call them flip floppers, like people who say a thing and then at some point say a different thing, and like you're not supposed to do that because you're supposed to stay on that on that track. But for me, it always comes from like, well, if if I get if I get better data, I update my views. Like, why would I not look at data once I've seen new data? Like, you can't unsee that. Uh, but that that willingness to 
be firm in my beliefs and still be ready to change them when new data comes in, I think is part of what, when I look over the long term of how this is built as a career over 20 years, like the first five was all just like invest in the knowledge and find the confidence. I think what's allowed the trajectory to, to continue to grow and compound is, is the ability to do that and still change and adapt to a changing environment or right? like even, you know, 14 years ago, Kitsis.com was a premium newsletter service. We had like four different business model iterations since then as it's continued to adapt to the landscape. You know, we have the same philosophy. We don't advise our clients on anything unless we ourselves have done it from a market. And so this live podcast recording yep. is actually an example because now we can advise our clients on how to do it. Um, the conference is focused on organic growth. And I had mentioned to you, we had sat in the DeVoe and uh, the... Um, a lot of the valuation conversations, and it was really focused on valuation. What does valuation look like? And again and again, we're seeing you need a repeatable digital marketing machine. And then we're also seeing, um, you know, there's this still this hesitancy around adopting uh, video or potentially, I, actually, I think there's more video. There's a lot of advisors rocking video, but less around podcasting, getting a little bit more comfortable with social media. And on your LinkedIn profile, I couldn't believe it when I actually saw it. Everyone go check it out. Go to Kitz's LinkedIn profile. He's got a video pinned at the top where he shot a video with Investment News nine years ago, nine years ago, and he's talking about the power of social media, of podcasting, of video to drive growth. You were saying it nine years ago, right? And everything you said when I watched the video is still relevant. And one of the comments you made is social media is referral marketing. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I... So, so when I started down, kind of like the the when I when I transitioned from being full time in the advisory firm to launching Kitsis.com and starting to do this writing and speaking thing, the original business model was was pretty simple and straightforward. Like I was I was going to publish a premium newsletter. It was uh, 150 bucks a year. You would get 12 uh, 12 issues of like me super deep diving nerding out on a topic uh, uh, every month. Uh, that would promote my expertise for, to my newsletter subscribers, which would get me an opportunity to speak at conferences. And then if I got to speak at a conference, I would get in front of new people who I would get to see my brand and my expertise. And then hopefully I could get them to become newsletter subscribers. And like I would just sort of build this, build this virtuous circle. And, and I had, you know, so this was 2008. And even by then, like blogging was sort of a thing. Social media wasn't really going yet. Blogging was a thing, and I actually tried it a little. So like, I, I originated Nerd's Eye View because it was like the nerdy newsletter, so I'm going to have the nerdy blog. I called it the Nerd's Eye View. I launched it in, in 2008 when I launched the site. I wrote a couple of posts. I was like, I don't feel like anybody's really reading this. Uh, so I installed Google Analytics and proved no one was reading it. I was like, I don't get this blogging thing. Like, apparently it works in other industries, but it must not work in ours and financial services, and I dropped it. And so, like, there were a couple of posts, and then the whole thing went dormant for a couple of years. And in the fall of 2010, I was at a, uh, a study group meeting that I've, I've been with uh, some advisor friends in a study group now for almost 15 years. We were still pretty early on then. Uh, and so one of my study group mates is an uh, advisor-turned-tech consultant named Bill Winterberg, who a few people know. And um, 
Uh, and so Bill had said to me, hey, Michael, you should check out this Twitter thing. I think you'd like it. Mm-hmm. And so Bill introduced me to Twitter, and I joined Twitter, and, you know, particularly early days of Twitter, there was a lot of, like, no one really quite knew what Twitter was going to be and what it was all about. I basically started using it as a personal news feed. Like, I started following people I like, like, here, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of a gamer techie uh, uh, person at heart, so, like, I followed some people writing about the gaming world and World of Warcraft and, like, you know, build your own PC stuff because I did a lot of that. Um, I started following some of the industry publications. I started finding just, like, some one-off people that were had really interesting subject matter areas that I knew nothing about. It's like, you just, like, share neat things. Like, I'm just going to follow you. You're doing, you're doing neat stuff. And, and this, like, light bulb moment went off, right? Like, eureka light bulb above head moment went off. Uh, for me, it was like, but you know, the one thing that I'm not finding when I'm following all this stuff on Twitter is like, there's no one that does this for financial planning. Like there's no, there's no financial planning blogger dude or dudette. So it's like, I'm going to beat financial planning blogger dude. Like I, I get it now. And so I relaunched the blog and started sharing it out to social media. And the, and the, and, and within two years, like the business just hockey sticked, like the growth just turned straight upwards in, in hockey stick style growth as people started finding our content and finding the, the speaking and the research and the work that we were doing. Uh, it exploded the newsletter business and it really exploded the, the, uh, the speaking and consulting business. I did a lot more consulting back then. All driven from, look, I just shared out who I was going to share out to, to the people who actually care about that. Those people followed me. Everybody else didn't, right? It's the digital version of this. Uh, right, people who are interested in what we have to say, listen to this podcast or have come to this part of the live, uh, the live at the exhibit hall. Everybody else is all out of the other end of the room and doesn't care. Totally cool for them. It's like the people who are interested started following it, otherwise known as, well, people who might actually be interested in doing business with me and the businesses that I've got because they follow our stuff and these are the people I'm talking to and I yeah. see the problems and I can bring solutions to them. And, and so that just began to scale because the powerful effect from it was like, it takes me the same amount of time to write an article or put out a tweet or do all this stuff, whether I've got 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people, the effects just get exponentially bigger for the same amount of work, which is like the quintessential ultimate version of leverage and efficiency and scalability. And, and it just starts scaling to the sky. And so, you know, I still spend as much or even technically a little bit less time writing and doing social media now than I did in the past. Part of that is I've got some team support. Part of that is just because we've, we've grown to a point where I don't have to be as hands-on personally and nurturing some of it as I, uh, as I did. And, you know, when, like when I started doing social media activity 10, I like almost 12 years ago now, cause that was the fall of 2010. Like I was probably doing a hundred or $150,000 of revenue. Three years later, I was doing four to $500,000 of revenue. That was like the hockey stick of growth as uh, folks started coming in. Like I was even writing for advisors and so many consumers were finding it that I ended up becoming a partner in the firm that I was only working at part-time because I was bringing so much business ancillary to the work that I was doing for, for advisors. That started growing so much that we started you know, launching related businesses as well. And now as I look at it, you know, 12 years later of social media compounding, like across all the different Kitsis related businesses, like we'll probably do somewhere between 24 and $25 million of revenue this Woo! 
all oh, yeah, that's a like <laughs> all, all all you know all driven from like writing nerdy articles on the internet and tweeting them like there's a little bit more that went into it than that but like not a lot actually right and it just gets back to the same thing like and yeah i'm sure there's a whole bunch of people who are not into what i do and not into the content that we produce and it's totally cool they don't follow me and they don't opt in and they don't and they're not hanging out for this session but there's a whole bunch of people that we serve well and i know who we serve and we try to be really really good at serving them and that brings in a whole bunch of other opportunities as well. Like we weren't even writing for consumers, but we bring in a regular flow of, of consumer business as well. Um, all just driven by, you know, when you get clear on who you're serving and stay focused with them and just like find your herd and run with your herd and go all in on it. One of the most powerful things about social media is just how ridiculously scalable it is because the content just keeps multiplying, keeps amplifying followers retweet and share it to each other which to me is the equivalent of a digital referral and and for me even from the start because you know I, I got a lot of questions especially early on as i was doing this like where do you all find all the time to do this and i was like well it's really simple i stopped going to networking meetings I'm like no offense to networking meetings like i suck at network i'm an intro i'm a hardcore introvert i get pegged as an introvert extrovert because i'm on the stage a lot like i'm a hardcore raging introvert it's like you put me at a networking party i'm in the like the furthest corner possible distant from the music preferably a little bit dark and quieter and like if anyone wants to come talk to me that's cool but uh not the best if you're supposed to be networking and doing business development so for me as a raging introvert in particular it's like i cut out all the really inefficient networking meetings that everybody told me i'm supposed to spend hours doing every week and that's where the time came from early on and this is way 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 more effective to you know, create something that goes out to now like tens of thousands of people the day that it drops instead of another networking meeting and maybe I can talk to eight people, shake a couple of hands, get three business cards, do seven follow-up lunches and hope to get one referral source. <laughs> well, it's incredible because you've done it by staying true to who you are, by sort of finding your passion and your mission, by being very clear on who you want to serve and who you best serve, not worrying about the rest. And so it's such a privilege for Candace and I to be able to share your story on the New School podcast. And I just wanted to thank you for, for sharing the story and sort of talking about how you've overcome some of your challenges. It's great for us to be able to demonstrate to other emerging leaders in the industry that you will have challenges and you can overcome them if you don't give yourself too many self-limiting beliefs, right, that are gonna that are gonna stop you along the way. So I know Candace will wrap us up with one final question, but I just wanted to share my gratitude. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. And I think uh, if you haven't listened to, I'm sure everyone has, you and uh, Carl Richards are my favorite favorite podcasts. Just brilliant. Brains, smarts, but also a lot of heart. So thank you for being a guest on our new school podcast. Very big highlight. We close out every episode by asking our guests, what does the new school mean to you? What does the new school mean to me? Well, I mean, you, you've kind of set us up as a podcast of authenticity. So I'm sort <laughs> of on the, uh, on the, on the, on the theme of, of authenticity. I mean, I, I, uh, to the extent that so many of us just have that mentality of, I want to run with the herd, it's scary to separate from the herd, it's scary to do anything different. I mean, to me, like the, the theme of what emerges around the new school and authenticity is, is I would say either that, that willingness to be different, although again, I would frame it less as, it's not about the scariness of separating from the herd, it's about finding your herd and finding your people and not being afraid to lean into finding your people 
doing the journey to find them or spending more time with them and going going all in it when you're there like that to me is the piece that holds us back the most you know some of us are still on that journey of trying to find where that destination is a lot of us like the truth is somewhere deep down like you know it's there you know what you want to do you know who you want to serve you know who you want to be working with you know the kind of work that you like doing you know the kind of people that you want to be spending time with and then it's a whole bunch of those limiting beliefs that start cropping up in our heads that say like well i can't do that because and then you start filling in the blank and you know to just be willing to lean into it to say like but these are my people like why would i spend so much time with people that aren't really the ones that I want to serve and fit best with when I could serve the people that I, that are my people. Like that to me is when everything starts to change and you know relative to the status quo that's certainly a a new school and a different approach to uh to marketing but just like it's 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 amazing what happens including just the little things like it's actually fun and exciting to wake up in the morning like I'm excited to look at my email every morning because I like what we do and who we serve. And it took a long time to get there, but you know, all the like productivity things you're never supposed to look at your email in the morning, you're supposed to get other productive work first done. Like, I like looking at my email in the morning. It feels good. We're interacting with people we're helping because I just went all in on them. Thanks so much for being here, for being so generous with your time. And to our audience, if you could give a live round of applause for the podcast episode. Thank you, Thank you for being here. You could be anywhere. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.